This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Sophie Blackall about learning to draw, about the difference between painting and illustration, and how she got into illustrating and also writing children's books. There is something slightly subversive, I think, that does thread through even the children's books, and that's definitely left over from my painting days. Here's Debbie Miller. Sophie Blackall's playful drawings and watercolors can be seen in the New York Times, Real Simple Magazine, in children's books, and now on the New York City subway. Her subway poster displays a motley strip of characters, what else, riding the subway. They're varied and eccentric and so lovingly drawn that it makes you see the real strangers right next to you on the train just a little bit differently. That same delight in strangers informs one of Blackall's most public projects, Missed Connections, where she illustrates her favorite Craigslist postings from that famous online board. She chooses them carefully, of course. Here's a favorite. We shared a bear suit. Sophie Blackall, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So the first question I want to ask you is this. Is it true that you love drawing animals but are ashamed to say that you almost always want to put clothes on them? Oh, that is true. And and I'm only mildly ashamed of it because <laughs> I think they look better with clothes most of the time. But so what's wrong with wanting them dressed? I think that that's absolutely oh, appropriate. It's probably not really taking their needs into consideration, I have to admit. But sort of like children, you know, you have children to entertain yourself. (laughs) So, you know, up until an age when they can refuse, you can dress them in in amusing outfits, the same as with animals. I always feel a little bit guilty when I dress my pets up. I I feel Mm. like Scruffy, my older dog feels that it's somehow undignified but oh, and he always gives me that look like really again mm, yes i dream of having a donkey cuz i think a hat would obviously be really good on a donkey but if i have a donkey then i want a goat to stand on the donkey's back and then i need a rooster who will be compliant enough to stand on the goat's back and that whole thing is is going to teeter and 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 then you have to care for them the rest of the time which is just too much bother well you know most of the uh, Warner Brothers characters are animals that have some type of attire. In fact, mm. many, many, many years ago, I thought you'd enjoy knowing this. Many years ago, I worked on a project with Bugs Bunny and inadvertently had him dressed in just a jacket, mm. but no bottoms. No pants, no. And apparently, um, we were told that Bugs is never bottomless. Oh, mm. And I, I never, I never knew that. Yeah, I mean, when you get into those kinds of details, then does bugs have paws that can facilitate opening buttons and flies and things to take the trousers off? And you can really kind of <laughs> paint yourself into a corner. I do. No, I, <laughs> I do. Um, you know, in my defence, putting clothes on animals, I do. My one rule is that they should stay more or less in in the way that an animal would kind of move and that the clothes should be ill-fitting in the way that they would be if you were to actually put them on that animal. Okay, well... That makes it all okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I agree. (laughs) So, Sophie, you grew up in Australia where I understand you learned to draw on the beach with sticks. How did you do that? How did did you learn that? I 
think I said that once in an interview, and it's one of those things that that haunts you. I did. I I hated walking. I was an inherently lazy child, and we lived near the beach. And my mother and brother would go off for these long walks, and I would stay and draw with sticks in wet sand. And she'd always be worried I'd be, you know, gone by the time she got back. But she'd see me as a little speck in the distance, drawing away. I I also read an, another interview where, wherein you stated that before you were an illustrator. You were a child. <laughs> oh, and and mm. I was really fascinated by that comment. And I, and I don't really have a follow-up question other than, can you elaborate? Maybe it's, it's because the, the word illustrator is um, – it took me a while to feel comfortable with that word. As, as, a, as a student, I think I flirted with artist before I committed to illustrator. And um, I used to – I used to do more painting than I did drawing and had exhibitions of of paintings, what people call fine art, which is also a term I'm not very comfortable with. As opposed Um, to not fine art. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Kind of coarse art. Um, I think uh, I fully embrace Illustrator now. No, but mm. is it true that you thought you were terrible at drawing when you were little? Oh, but I was. It, it was, How was universally um, recognized. I think most pe- most children are just fantastic at drawing until they become self-conscious. And then, for me, I was then really bad. Once I became aware of, of drawing and trying to draw something, I remember just being incredibly frustrating trying to draw any any animal, basically, with those legs that go forwards, then backwards. I've just taken a uh, drawing anatomy class um, at this very late stage in my career. Um, a friend of mine, Chris Muller, who's a fantastic um, artist and illustrator and teacher, showed me that uh, that animals, like a cat, for example, they're and I wish I knew the names of these bones. I'm just going to make them up. The let's say the femur and the hip one <laughs> um, are always area. <laughs> are always parallel. And so, if you imagine a lightning bolt, this would be so much better if I could draw it. They're always parallel, and that just made so much sense. Once somebody showed me that, then I can draw the forwards and backwards legs, like a horse, for instance. But before then, as a child, they just looked like kind of melted candles. I understand that your mother also thought that you were terrible as an illustrator or as somebody that drew when you were a child. First, is that true? And second, how do you go from being terrible to being so good now? It oh. can't just be practice. Oh, that 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 implies that I am that good, and my, the Australian in me kind of I can't actually. I have to go around that question and say, "Oh, well, that's let, very kind of you." And, no, no. Uh, all right, let, let me work um, it a different way to make it easier you. for you. How do you go from being a terrible artist who can't draw to an award-winning <laughs> oh, artist so much who better. has published twenty children's books? I think, like anything, doing it a lot doing it over and over and over again. and Sophie, I've done relationships a lot. That's not a good answer. Not a good answer. So, um, um, wanting it desperately. I know that also doesn't really apply to relationships. Loving it, even when you're not that good at it. Loving it enough to do drawings that suck and, and, and looking at them and knowing that they kind of suck and wanting to go back and make them better. Loving looking at other people's drawings enough to figure out how they did that and what it is about that that you love and um, what about it works for you and also looking at drawings that don't work. And I mean, it's just looking, I think, looking and looking and then trying to apply what you see to what you do, which are often completely different things. And being comfortable when you realize that the picture in your head often doesn't 
come out on the page the way you want it to and kind of learning to love the thing that comes out on the page, which I think is a little bit like a relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Learning to love the one you're with or something. Isn't that the theory these days? But what about the understanding of how somebody that you admire has created something? Do you re-engineer it? How do you understand? I know one of your influences and somebody that you admire is Myra Kelman. Would you look at a piece of her work and really try to understand how she constructed that emotion, how she created these sort of tangible lines? What about it do you look at? Myra Kelman's a good one because I think our subject matters are similar. I think we have a similar sensibility and, and aesthetic, but our work is actually quite different. And I admire her her looseness in a way when we're talking about actual drawing. But I love her humor and I love the sensitivity and the the hilarious things that, that she chooses to cast a light on and, and her attention to detail. But in terms of her actual, the way she makes a mark, there's something very spontaneous about that, which I don't really have. You know, sometimes I wish I did, but mine are generally more considered. It might look in my head more like Myra Kalman. By the time I get it onto the page, I'm too in love with pattern and, and line and detail and then I kind of work away at it until it kind of usually ends up looking like me, I guess. <laughs> you can't oh, escape unmistakably, yourself. Yeah. unmistakably. <laughs> now, you completed a Bachelor of Design in Sydney in 1992 and you graduated with honours. Did you know prior to going to school what you wanted to do? Yes, Um I always did. You know, I think some kids do and and other kids go on a fantastic journey of exploration. I always wanted to draw and except for a very brief stint where I wanted to be a nurse. Um, I still kind of love that idea, but I think I'm too old now. And also, you know, I really do prefer drawing. But no, I, I always wanted to do that and specifically to do children's books. And now uh, I'm doing this other kind of work, which which combines a little bit of the nurse in me, which is this work for for measles and rubella, which also involves travel. And so they're my f- three favorite things: children, drawing, and and travel. And so magically, I've managed to combine those three, which makes me very happy. I know that you also do a lot of painting. You did quite a lot of painting. You had exhibits when you first graduated college, and you're going back and doing more of that now. Do you first consider yourself a painter or or an illustrator? Um, or is that a dumb question? It's No, it's not a dumb question at all. And it's something that I wrestled with in my 20s probably. But now that I'm over 40, um, I don't wrestle with things like that anymore. It's fantastic. I highly recommend turning 40 for all sorts of reasons. Try 50, sister. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I used to um, – I, I was always uncomfortable with the word artist because it sounded pretentious and painter sounded kind of like you had your sleeves rolled up and, you know, you could – put your hair up on top of your head and stick a paintbrush through it and um, wear overalls and things. And uh, But then at some point I realized, I realized just how much I loved illustration and the whole world of illustration and children's books in particular and how how nice people were in this industry, which uh, which continues to amaze me. Whereas the painting world felt really competitive to me and kind of really difficult, felt very much like a boy's world and um, so hard to get anybody to look at your work. And there were just so many obstacles. The joy of doing paintings just for yourself and, and not following a brief, that part was great. But you can do that, you know, in any medium. So, yeah, so I became an illustrator. When you were showing your work in galleries, the work that you were doing at that time was you were exploring themes of butchers, nurses, 
I guess that yes. was because of your desire <laughs> at that time to go into the medical profession. Anatomical teaching devices, medical anomalies, mm. and saints. Yes. And so I'm wondering how did your style evolve to the current charming, joyful work that you're doing now? It's very nice that you see it as being joyful. That's that's lovely. Somebody has said to me that that even in the children's books, they recognize a slightly dark streak kind of as an undercurrent in the drawings that at first look seem pretty and and or you know beautiful or or I don't know happy I guess and and in children's books generally you know that's a desirable quality but there is something slightly subversive I think that that does thread through even the children's books and that's definitely left over from my painting days and it's something I don't want to lose because I think children are pretty subversive creatures. It's interesting. It, it's subversive in the same way that The Wizard of Oz is subversive. Right. There's a subtext and yes. that subtext has to do with love and longing and loss and pain. Mm-hmm. But I guess for me, there seems to be an innate optimism in it that doesn't feel dark. Yes, there's darkness yeah. in the work, but I always get the sense that the light overcomes that darkness. And you can do so much with your work and the gestures, just the the brushstroke of you can create a brushstroke that somehow defines wistfulness. But in that ability to see that wistfulness, I can't help but feel understood, which for me then gives me a great sense of joy. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's that's an incredibly nice thing to say. But I I understand you still like to stick animal parts onto old dolls. (laughs) (laughs) That's subversive. (laughs) But they're already dead and and I didn't kill them. They had been dead for a very long time. I'm not sure if that makes it okay. (laughs) Well, let's talk about some of your books, your wonderful, magnificent books that are both subversive and joyful all at the same time. You illustrated your first children's book, Ruby's Wish, by Sharon Yim Bridges in 2002. How did that come to be? How did you get your first children's book deal? It's always the question, isn't it, that everybody wants to know about anybody else in any particular career. How did you get there? How did Mm. you, you know, how did you get your foot in the door or, or how did you start? Like most aspiring illustrators, I had, you know, carried my portfolio around and tried to get people to look at it for a long time and um, chronicle. I think I had sent them some samples of my work and then this manuscript came to them and they were, the the samples I had sent happened to have some Chinese drawings in them because I'd spent a couple of months in China. And they weren't sure because I was new and had never illustrated a book before. So they did something something kind of like a bake-off. They got, uh, they got three illustrators to have a stab at the same passage in the manuscript, and um, I was fortunate enough to, to, uh, to win the bake-off. And you've since illustrated about 20 other children's books, or is it more I think it's up to about 30. 30. Yes. Oh, I'm not including, including Ivy and oh, Bean oh, as oh, one separate, separate then, series. Then, yes, let's go with 20. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I read an interview where you stated, when you illustrate a children's book, you have to be an architect, clothing designer, landscape artist, and town planner. You have to decide the period, whether the characters are human, animal, or something other. Often some of this information is supplied in the manuscript, but it is still quite an undertaking. So what is your process in making that decision, whether somebody is human or an animal or something else? 
It depends very much on the on the manuscript. There was a book I did a couple of years ago called Edwin Speaks Up, and the manuscript was about a family, a mother and and several children who go to a supermarket, and the baby who is more knowing than anybody realizes. They think he's babbling, but in fact he's kind of seeing things that the rest of them can't. I often take on a manuscript because it terrifies me, and this one terrified me because it a lot of it takes place in a supermarket car park and I can't draw cars at all. So I thought, good, okay, that'll be good for me. <laughs> it's a perverse reason. But it was for uh, Schwartz and Wade, and they said, we, we don't mind if you do animals or, or humans or, you know, we love both or whatever, you know, monsters if you want. So, oh, my God, such freedom is, is kind of paralyzing. The characters' names all began with F. So I started thinking of, of animals that began with F and, and I love drawing foxes, but foxes were suddenly really fashionable. Um, and there were foxes everywhere and I can't do foxes. Then I was looking online and I saw a, um, a photograph of somebody's pet ferret pushing a miniature shopping cart. And I saw oh, fantastic ferrets. And because they can also do that hind leg, vaguely human thing, and then roll into a ball and stretch out and do all sorts of odd things. So they became ferrets. So that was one you know, reason for making them something particular. You've illustrated the complete collection of the Ivy and Bean series by Annie Barrows, which have sold over 2 million copies. Congratulations. Oh, that is amazing. You. Is working on a series fundamentally different to working on a single story for you? Oh, very much so. I mean, it's so much about continuity and the readers are probably sort of anywhere from 5 to 11. And they will notice, you know, oh my goodness, they'll notice the tiniest detail, you know, if you get it wrong. So I just, I have all of their eyes over my shoulders as I'm drawing all those little sweaty kids. And uh, so the first book, we didn't have any idea if it was going to be a series, if there was going to be more than one. So I blithely drew the whole neighborhood and there's a, there's a sort of aerial view of the street and all the houses. And now that is my gold you know, standard that I have to refer to, which drives me nuts. And, and I have no one to blame but myself. You know, but I, I put people's houses next to each other because that wasn't even in the manuscript. But now I have to go back and think, oh, God, Sophie W lives next door to, you know, Ivy. How can I get them to go from that house to that house without, you know, skipping past that bush? And where was the bush again? And has it grown? Has any time passed? No, I, I don't think any time passes in the series. So, Annie lives on the West Coast, where I imagine it's always 75 degrees, so the kids are always dressed in, in T-shirts. How would you describe the personalities of Ivy and Bean? Bean is, um, Bean is, 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 is full of beans, um, which is how she got her name, apparently, according to Annie. Uh, she's um, full of ideas and, and energy, and uh, she's very funny and um, restless and... And Ivy is more thoughtful and um, contemplative and mysterious. But then there are things that are, that are not necessarily as you would expect. Bean is actually very good at, at candy crafts, which, you know, you might expect Ivy to be good at, but Ivy can't draw to save a life or, or make a potholder. Or do the stars in the moon on or her bathroom. Or do the, exactly. She can't cut out stars, but, but Bean's quite good at that kind of thing. How do you come up with their visual characterizations? They pretty much arrived fully formed. I think in the first book, Annie describes them. Bean has hair that, you know, that she can't control, that her mother makes her wear a, a barrette to keep it out of her face. And Ivy always wears a sparkly headband and has this red hair. And so it was, it was pretty much their hair, which, which is where they began. And, and then they just um, 
they just became themselves. Although if you, I don't know if you've ever looked through the early Simpsons and, and noticed the kind of change over the years, how they were drawn in the beginning. And, and I do look back and, and worry that one day somebody's going to point out the um, discrepancies, the early Ivy and Bean. Their legs were kind of skinnier and they've become a little plumper. Well, they've matured. Yeah, as well. Walking around a lot too. (laughs) That's right, building up those calf muscles. And you also wrote a book about a story about your own son called Are You Awake? A book about going to sleep (laughs) or not. Yes. Mm. (laughs) And it's a book, as you describe it, as uh, about your bossy but endearing son. Mm. Um, What made you decide to do that book? I thought it was about time I started writing my own stories, much as I love illustrating other people's. And uh, we had been traveling to Europe and came back and my son was three at the time and had that jet lag that we all have, but toddlers particularly, their internal clocks take longer to adjust. And he was just up for about three nights in a row, just awake at four and insisting that the rest of the house got up. And he and I had this just surreal conversation with me desperately trying to stay asleep and him, you know, pestering me with questions and my monosyllabic answers to try and appease him. And it was very funny, this kind of circular conversation. And and I thought, oh, that's that's it. That's just a story. But in the the way of publishing, the gestation of that book was about ten years, and my son is now thirteen. Just came oh, out wow. last year. I was imagining it him just... as a tiny little boy, <laughs> <laughs> which is just as well because when he was about six or seven, he found the whole idea absolutely mortifying and made me promise that it would not be published, which I did, but with my fingers crossed behind my back. So <laughs> One of the lines in the book that I loved most was about the color yellow, mm. and you say some name sound yellow to me, like Peter, and some letters and numbers like E and 3. And I'm wondering, is that autobiographical as well? Yes. Um, my daughter also has that thing, I think it's called synesthesia. Where oh, so you, you really do yeah, have that. Yeah. And we argue, you know, endlessly over the colors of things because five, you know, is obviously pink and she thinks five's green, which is just silly. But three is yellow, definitely. And I'll argue to the death, anyone who suggests otherwise. What colour is 29? Well, 29 is a combination of two, which is red, and nine, which is mustard. So, Like orangey? Mm, the, the numbers, the individual digits retain their colours, so it doesn't blend. You also illustrated the one and only children's story that Aldous Huxley wrote, hmm. The Crows of Pure Blossom. How did that come about for you? That was um, my editor at Abrams sent me that manuscript, and which was just like a, a, a gift, a gift in your inbox, um, a very exciting day. The Crows of Pear Blossom uh, had been published in, I think, 61 posthumously, but it was written in 1945. And the, the edition that had been published was as an early reader, and Barbara Cooney had done the illustrations, and I love her work. But I hadn't seen the book and I was um, racked with indecision whether to look at it or not because I thought if I look at it, I might be overly influenced and, and not be able to see it, my own version of it. But if I don't look, what if my version ends up being uncannily similar to, to hers? Then it'll look like I'm copying. Um, so in the end, I did look at it and, and they are really lovely, lovely drawings. But um, I think there was enough different because they were black and white or two color anyway and it was done in a, in a different format. But that was a great fun book to work on and also a kind of challenging book to work on because Huxley's story is unsurprisingly 
verging on the misogynistic. And also quite subversive <laughs> also and dark. Also quite subversive <laughs> and dark. And I had to find a way to address that problem, you know, as a self-respecting feminist, how to deal with the fact that Mr. Crow talks to Mrs. Crow in a kind of horrible way yeah, most of the does. time. He, he tells does. her to shut her beak and, you know, that, that she's stupid and, and things like that. So my ways around it were to make her this kind of lovely, sumptuous, glossy, sleek, feathered bird. And her husband, Mr. Crow, is this scrappy little, he's about half her size. I was going to say she's a lot bigger than he is. She is a lot bigger. And then my other little just detail for my own kind of peace of mind was to pack her a suitcase, which um, I drew and and popped underneath the bed. So I thought she could, she had a getaway planned. (laughs) One of the most charming and witty illustrations in the book, which is about a mother crow's realization that a rattlesnake is stealing her daily eggs, is the drawing of Mrs. Crow coming home early from her daily jaunt to the supermarket. What struck me was her bag full of groceries. Oh, I'm so glad you noticed that. <laughs> it contains polenta, a loaf of bread, two eggplants, a leafy green vegetable, and a carton of eggs. <laughs> <laughs> is that a joke to the yes. reader? <laughs> yes. Actually, a very, very dear, <laughs> a very dear friend in my life uh, noticed and pointed it out and said, you must ask Sophie. So I don't want to take the credit um, because I don't know that I would have. I did notice the polenta. I didn't get past the polenta. <laughs> well, I did I did quite a bit of research on crows and uh, and they, they do eat grain and eat you know, so, so that was a nod to the to the corn. But also they they do steal eggs. Crows steal eggs from other nests, which I thought was just a fantastically kind of, you know, weird, ironic twist to the whole thing, this story about the poor put upon crow whose eggs are stolen when actually crows aren't, you know, blameless themselves in the animal world. So, You never really describe, or I guess Huxley never really describes whether or not the snake dies at the end, but he is indeed the clothesline. So he's either a captive, <laughs> captive by the crows for the rest of his life or dead, yes. <laughs> either of which is kind yeah. of dark. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think that's a, that's a sort of question that's left to the reader. But, and I think John Classen is having to answer a lot of those questions right now with his Caldecott winning, this is not my hat, when some people are, but wait, the fish dies? Well, it's hard to read it otherwise. And so I think it's the same thing with the snake. You could choose to believe he's in perpetual kind of torture as a clothesline or, you know, neither option is really good. Well, if you think about some of the really classic children's stories, there's there's often trauma. Oh, I mean, the Disney story is a Lion King. The father gets trampled. And Mm -hmm. I mean, even in The Wizard of Oz, bad witches die. Yeah. The scarecrow gets burned and yeah. why why is that why aren't they more light is there well, a need because, for this because i think that's only about 3% of them and i think the other 97% are all light and sunny and and people thinking that children can't cope with you know anything dark when children are fairly dark creatures i think i think it's i think it's okay to show them you know those the the, the natural world to a degree, <laughs> in a nice way. <laughs> well, let's talk about the, the natural world as depicted in Missed Connections. Um, you are the author and illustrator of one of my favorite books of all time. 
It's called Misconnections, Love, Lost, and Found. And the book actually began as a blog in early 2009 as a series of paintings based on real, anonymous messages posted online by lovelorn strangers on Craigslist after seeing somebody on the New York City subway they wished they had reached out to but didn't. What made you decide to do this in the first place? I had no idea what a misconnection was. I was on a crowded subway and um, it was the the kind of crush where you're not quite sure where where your limbs end and the other person begin. And there was a handsome fellow next to me. He stepped off the train and, and kind of looked through the window and mouthed something at me and I had no idea what he was saying. And so I turned to the person next to me and stranger said well, what's he saying and she said misconnections but she was really cool so I didn't want to ask her what they were because I didn't want to look like an idiot so I made a little mental note and then when I got home I googled misconnections and then I lost you know probably the next two hours easily and just scallops and yes that's right I had been shopping I had I had a bag of scallops that I left on the kitchen floor and I think the cat may have licked some of them but it was well it was a it was a good sacrifice because I found this material that I immediately thought was the thing I had been looking for because I had been as much as I love 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 doing the children's books I'd been sort of itching to do something a little bit growing up and something just for me to scratch that that itch of the painting that I haven't been doing so much of. So the, the misconnections were just this bountiful material of, of, of love and loss and, and um, yearning and heartbreak and, and they were funny and weird and, and all in this, you know, these little fragments of stories. But you never found the misconnection from that gentleman. No, it didn't even occur to me to look because you know I, I, I'm not looking in the first place. But also, he was just the he was just the stepping stone to, <laughs> to the material. I know that's terrible, but I kind of love that. You, yeah. don't, you still to this day, all these years later, have no idea no. who sort of no helped create this entire chapter. Um, Jim Buckmaster, the chief executive of Craigslist, has stated that he started Missed Connections after you smiled at me on the subway platform type listings kept coming up in the personal ads on the site. And he thought that the listings were intriguing because they mixed the natural desire to make a good first impression and the very human need to get a second chance. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's really that's it in a nutshell. Um, I think it is all about that second chance, and it's the the one that got away, and that romantic idea of 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 what if you know what might have been if the train had stalled a few minutes longer in the station, and and either party had had the courage to say something to the other, but. To be honest, I I love the fact that they're open-ended and probably now hundreds of people have written to me telling me their story where they find the other person, which is wonderful and I'm so happy for them. And, and, you know, what are the odds, except the odds do actually seem to be quite great based on the number of people who have written to me. Um, (laughs) But but I know it seems sort of mean-spirited or something, but I'm not as interested in the stories where they find each other as – as I am in in the the unfinished stories, the sort of electricity of that moment is um, is pretty riveting. You described what you were attempting to do with misconnections in this way: messages in bottles, smoke signals, letters written in the sand. The modern equivalents are the funny, sad, beautiful, hopeful, hopeless, poetic posts on misconnections websites. 
Every day, hundreds of strangers reach out to other strangers on the strength of that glance, a smile, or a blue hat. Their messages have the lifespan of a butterfly. I'm trying to pin a few of them down. How do you pick what you want to write about and illustrate? Firstly, it's the subject line that pops out at me because there are so many, you know, on any given day in New York, there are, there are over a hundred. Um, and they just, if you refresh as you're looking at more coming in the whole time, you know, in real time too, because some people will actually send them, you know, from above ground just as they've got off a subway. Or one I read was, was written at the new school and it was, you just dropped your scarf. Should I call after you? You know, to have you come back and pick it up. It's like, why didn't you just kind of run after them? It's funny. But the, the, the subject line will jump out at me if there's something visual in it or, or lyrical or curious. And then it's, it's just whether it appears as a, as a picture in my head when I read it. Let's talk about Whale at Coney Island. Mm. Whale at Coney Island is the most heartbreaking mm-hmm. and probably the most beautiful, in my opinion, my small opinion, <laughs> misconnection in misconnections. Can you describe it for our listeners? Most misconnections you read on Craigslist are, are brief. It's uh, impetuous. It's it's sort of dashed off. You know, often spell check isn't really employed. It's a, it's a quick message. But now and then there's one that is something else. And the whale at Coney Island was that something else. It was a story and it was a beautifully written, heartbreaking story of somebody reaching out to their dear friend and would-be lover from, I can't remember now, but I think it was maybe a 30-year gap. Yeah, I think it was it was the 60s. Yeah, so, so even longer than that. They were school teachers up in the Bronx and every day for a period they would take the train to Coney Island in the hope of seeing the first baby beluga whale to be born at the aquarium. And uh, they made this journey, this really long journey every day together. And then one day they they arrived and the, the whale had been born and it was stillborn. And they sat on a bench on the promenade and they looked out to sea and I think they were just grief-stricken and one of them reached out for the other one's hand or maybe they went in for a kiss or something and the other one... The person writing said he pulled away and it wasn't he wasn't ready and and then they went their separate ways and and he says you know not a day has gone by since then that he doesn't think of his friend and and what happened and when I read this I've never actually talked about this because I always want people to find it for themselves in the in the book but when I first read the misconnection it was like everything stood still and I thought oh this is this is amazing an amazing thing to read on the internet and to read in Craigslist that's so full of you know the kind of mostly seamy stuff and and then when I went back up to the top it was only then that I realized it was a man writing to another man and that somehow to me was was even more incredibly moving because it made that moment it made more sense why it was so difficult for them and more sense why either one didn't act on it and being school teachers and there must have been so many kind of restrictions and and the fact that that he hasn't ever forgotten about his friend is is heartbreaking i've been hoping although I I don't feel particularly optimistic, that you know if they found each other and are living happily ever after. Not that I know of. I was hopeful too, but I've never... I have heard from quite a few other people who claim to be the people in 
the misconnections that I've painted but that haven't heard from that fellow. You've written how, and you just actually mentioned as well, that you don't really want to know most of the outcomes, if not all, except perhaps our, yeah, our I would like man to know at, that the, one. <laughs> at Coney Island uh, Aquarium. And that while you like a happy ending as much as the next person, you love the mystery and the uncertainty and the electric current of possibility. And there's a reason that all the best love stories end at the first kiss. And I couldn't help but sort of scream out when I read that, oh, my God, that's so right. <laughs> Why is that? Why do you think that is? Why do we end stories at that sort of first kiss, that first happy moment? Oh, I don't know, because I think after that, it's really only relevant to the people in it. I mean, who cares about Elizabeth and Darcy after they, you know, finally say to each other that, yes, they actually like each other and mean it. I mean, yeah. Even in TV shows, you know, once that, you know, kiss occurs, then it, the ratings go down. Right, right. <laughs> um, because, uh, yeah, I, I think we all know that, you know, when you're actually in a relationship, it continues to be, you know, wonderful in all sorts of different ways. And hopefully that's, you know, that's why we, that's why we choose monogamy when we do, those of us who do sometimes. Um, <laughs> um, but, but for the rest of us as, as, you know, onlookers, you know, we don't, we don't really care once they close the door. Unless they have a fight and then they can get back together again, then, then the ratings might go exactly, back up Exactly. <laughs> you've said that the enormous amount of tenderness in the messages that you've read makes you all swoony about your fellow human beings. Yeah. Why is that? I tend to be kind of swoony about my fellow human beings a lot of the time, um, except when they're, you know, horrible or irritating or, or something else. There's there's so much, you know, that's just lovely. A, a quick story, if I may, that just happened. It's fresh. I was taking the Staten Island Ferry just last uh, last week. I'd never been to Staten Island before and I was going for dinner and I was meeting friends for the 6.15 ferry. I arrived at about 10 to 6 and I stood waiting and just watching everybody flow off the train into the doors and then I noticed that there was one young man who was holding the door open. I thought, oh, he's holding it for a couple of friends. No, he's holding the door and he was there holding it for everybody and I kind of edged towards him and I said are you, are you uh, do you do this professionally what are you, are you, is this an experiment and he said no I'm just holding the door I said do you have a boat to catch he said yep I'll just hold it till my boat and he stayed there and I said are you counting the people who thank you nope I'm not looking for anything and and it was just so interesting to watch him and to watch the people who chose to go through his open door and the people who avoided him, those who made eye contact, those who didn't. Eventually, he said he, he would stay there until people started to run for his boat. And eventually, people were running. And I was like, quick, they called it quick, you're going to miss it. And and he said goodbye. And he ran and the door started to close. And I caught it by the handle. And I thought, well, I've got 15 minutes. Aww. So I stood and held the door. And it was just this this kind of lovely fascinating thing to do for 15 minutes and you just make this little connection with people who are in a rush and people some of them were on their phone and, and with bags and didn't have a free hand and which is so they didn't convey anything but through their eyes but just really grateful for someone holding the door <laughs> and other people would just sort of all oh, felt beholden or something and would kind of go around you but it was just it was a really lovely thing 
Did anybody take over for you when you... No, 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 I know. I kind of, that would have been really nice to have that chain keep going. But let's pretend they did. Yes, they did. (laughs) So I have two more questions for you, Sophie. Um, I know that you use Chinese ink and watercolor to create your work. You're still using the watercolor set that your dad gave you when you were 15? Yes, um, I have replaced a few of them, but um, I use... A few of the colors? A few of the colors, Okay, but you still have the kit. I do. I use uh, Schmincke watercolors that are in those little pans and they're wrapped, individually wrapped like little chocolates and there's something kind of very, I like that whole little process of of unwrapping them and replacing them and going to buy them at at Pearl Paint and the, the man has to get a ladder to get the special box down and, you know, it's one of those last sort of analog things that I cling to. And my very last question is, um, I read that you make preposterous birthday cakes for your children. What kind of preposterous cakes and where can we see them? Oh, they've all been eaten. (laughs) Um, Sorry. Uh, And also my kids are now 13 and 15, so they've – not that they wouldn't accept a cake, I guess, but they don't really have those kinds of parties anymore. Uh, but no, I love if, – if I couldn't do what I do, I think I would like making cakes. Do you make preposterous cakes for anybody else now? If there's a good excuse, yes. I love cake supply shops and I like anything specific, you know, a whole shop that has um, things to cut things out in special shapes and piping and food colouring. It's all very exciting. What was the most preposterous cake you've ever made? When Olive was two, I made her a uh, a dinner table with a tablecloth which was rolled out of marzipan and there were two plates which each had um, knives and forks and, and sausages and peas and carrots on the plates and candlesticks and candles. So that was all made out of fondant and marzipan. That was fun. That sounds magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> Sophie, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. To learn more about Sophie Blackall and to see some of her beautiful, magnificent illustrations, visit sophieblackall.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.